Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll explore how environmental justice issues and climate change are interlinked to historical racial inequalities and what it means for you, your community, and the data stories you tell. It is a well-documented fact that communities of color are disproportionately impacted by polluting industries and lax regulation. Data shows such communities are also more likely to live in polluted and low-income areas, spend more of their income on energy, and suffer from more climate-inducing health issues like asthma compared to white and wealthier communities. In the United States, this inequality is linked to redlining, a practice that dates back to the 1930s, where the U.S. federal government began redlining real estate and marking it as risky neighborhoods for federal mortgage loans on the basis of race. Though the practice is now technically illegal, whether it's still happening depends on who you ask. Regardless, the legacy of such discriminatory practices lives on with communities of color, leaving them with less generational wealth, poorer health, and limited resilience and resources to handle the impacts of climate change. Joining us to discuss this is Dana Amahir, a data journalist, designer, and developer, who is also the founder and executive director of Afro LA, a nonprofit newsroom covering greater Los Angeles through the lens of the black community. She's committed to solutions reporting that centers racial and social justice, especially through data-driven storytelling. Previously, she worked in data interactive design and news apps for KPCC LAist, the Dallas Morning News, Pew Research Center, and the Baltimore Sun. She also owns Code Black Media, a digital media and data consultancy, and is a lecturer at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. We are also joined by Melba Newsom, an award-winning freelance journalist with more than 20 years experience writing health, science, and environmental features for a variety of regional and national publications. Melba is an adjunct journalism professor at Wake Forest University and director of the WFU Mellon Summer Institute for Environmental Journalists. She is also a 2023 Alicia Patterson Fellow working on a year-long project about people of color displaced by climate change. From LA to the Carolinas, both offer in-depth explanations and examples of how climate change is linked to the inequalities of historically marginalized communities. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Melba and Dana now. Hi, Melba and Dana. Thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations with Data. Oh, thank you for having me. Good morning. Thanks so much for coming on and taking the time out of your busy schedule uh, to join us today. Um, We're going to be talking, as you know, about environmental justice, environmental racial justice issues. Um, I thought it would be great if you could start out and just introduce yourselves. Well, yes, I am a veteran uh, independent journalist. I've been doing doing this for over 20 years. And in recently, well, the last few years, I, my focus has been on environmental reporting, environmental uh, journalism, environmental justice issues, as well as environmental health and environmental racism. That's kind of been my focus that came out uh, of the pandemic for the most part. Basically, I've worked, done health, 
science and environmental journalism, but my focus is now mostly on environmental justice. I'm Dana Amy here. I'm the executive director and founder of AfroLA. We're a new-ish nonprofit newsroom uh, in Los Angeles. Our goal is to provide um, news for Los Angeles through the lens of the Black community. So we're news for all LA, but we particularly focus on um, the perspective of the Black community and other historically marginalized communities and vulnerable groups and how disproportionality and inequity um, affect those communities and affect us all. Brilliant. And um, I wonder if just to set the scene for our, our listeners who are from all over the world and maybe aren't so familiar with what's happening in the U.S. or its history, I wonder if we could just uh, revisit the history of how Black communities have been at the forefront of environmental justice issues um, since the civil rights movement, even, which is something I found very interesting when I was you know, researching this topic. And I wonder if you just want to set the scene and talk a little bit about that, Melba, for us. Well, one thing I'm in kind of the what's considered the birthplace of the environmental justice movement, which is North Carolina. And that's attributed to an event that happened celebrating 40 years of that, which was the Warren County protest in uh, Warren County, which is toward eastern North Carolina, when there was a uh, the government, the state government was going to dump uh, all of these PCB chemicals in this mostly black community. And they protested against that. Their protests were they actually got training from the people who were in the civil rights movement about things to do and, you know, how to interact, how to get more media attention, what to do when the police came in. But and so the protests lasted for for weeks and about 500 people were arrested. It got international attention and that, uh, and Ben Chavis who was leading that protest when he was arrested, he, he said, this is environmental racism and the term kind of stuck. So other, mo other movements and other, it kind of galvanized people, especially when there was proof to show how these uh, you know, this kind of dumping was always in Black communities uh, because they had no political power to stand up against it or anything like that. So that kind of started uh, the environmental justice movement, and we're really proud of that here in North Carolina. But 40 years later, uh, I'm not sure how much progress we've made because there's still a lot of that going on in certain communities. Absolutely. And I think the interesting part about this is that I don't think people are really aware, I don't know, in, in the United States that it really actually, the, the Black community was leading on this issue. And I think it's been very much, from the mainstream perspective at least, been dominated by white voices and you know, people thinking it's just about saving the panda and they don't realize it's actually affecting people's lives and today, now and in the past. Um, and it's like you said, are we seeing any progress on this? So that's what I found most interesting when researching this issue. Well, you're absolutely right. But I do think that there has been more progress. You're absolutely right about 
who was leading the movement and who was the face of the movement for so long. And those were kind of white affluent people. And even though I think, unfortunately, the people who are unaware or most unaware of who's the, the on the front lines are the people who themselves are on the front lines. Uh, 10 years ago, when I would talk to a Black person about uh, the environmental climate change, I, you have no idea how many times people said to me, that's a rich white person's problem. And I'm going, no, we are most at risk. And so I think there is really a growing recognition of that among uh, Black people, how all of this is tied together, climate change and environmental justice and just environmentalism, how it all works together. And they that's progress because you have to break it down to them and say, no, this isn't about how much snow we're going to have in Jackson Hole. This is about whether your house is going to go underwater and what pollution is in your communities, because that's where they can always uh, locate a new power plant or something like that to um, to get that up without much backlash, so to speak. And some people may view environmental justice and racial justice as two separate issues, like mainly white people. And so from your reporting, I wonder why that is not the case. And like, how do you explain this intersectionality to naysayers? Do you have any thoughts on that, Dana? So from the get, Afro-LA was built on the premise of intersectionality, that I truly believe that nothing, race, ethnic identity, community, um, nothing can be boiled down to just a, a monolith. Um, no person, no thing, no community is just one thing. It's more complicated than that because we are complicated creatures and this is a very complicated world. And that includes environmental and racial justice. They're connected. Um, and it's not just a simple cause and effect. It's a very complex set of circumstances in which multiple things are set into motion um, and they have you know, multiple varying outcomes and impacts on people and communities. And you can't boil that down to just, you know, A led to B and B led to C. It's not that neat and tidy. Um, it's messy. And thus things, you know, layer on top of each other and they overlap on top of each other. And you can't say that you can, you can separate them. It's very much a Venn diagram, you know, to the nth degree of all of these things, um, overlapping on top of each other. Absolutely. And you're a data journalist and an editor. And I wonder, and you're also a, a lecturer too in journalism. And I wonder how have you used data to sort of inform your reporting on environmental justice issues for your solutions publication, Afro LA? So to me, um, I view data, it's kind of like getting a golden ticket. Um, when it comes to solutions reporting. I feel like if I can um, harness the power of data, um, it can really help people see that there's concrete evidence that there's data behind the solutions reporting um, where I'm writing and saying, um, you know, how this worked in other places or what we think might work um, in the place that we're in, um, if certain things and certain circumstances change and um, are able to uh, make that come about. 
So to me, data helps break down barriers for those people who think that you know, solutions journalism, it's fluffy and always happy and it's not real news. So the data helps say, yes, this is real. Here's the evidence. And this is something that you know um, is a real news issue and it's something that we need to take seriously. And when we talk about solutions journalism, it's not saying, hey, we're gonna solve, we're gonna, you know. Um, solve the problems of the entire world. We're saying, hey, we've taken a small segment of something. We've taken a one issue, and this is how we're looking at how we address it versus how someone else addresses it and how we might be able to do better um, in terms of solutions. And I think data plays right into that, and it makes it more understandable for folks to really grasp the solutions um, end of the reporting. Absolutely. And, you know, your publication, Afro-LA, is putting together a solutions-oriented series uh, called 2035. Tell us about this and why now? So the why now? Uh, this has been in progress for almost since the inception of Afro-LA. So before we ever announced any coverage areas that we were going to have, our editorial priority was to understand what we needed to provide to our community as a source of local news. So we um, disseminated a news needs survey or an information um, needs assessment as we kind of internally call it. And we asked people like, what do you want from us as your local news provider? Like what kind of coverage do you want to see? Um, so, you know, of course we had, uh, the, the very unsurprising things. It's like, okay, you got to cover um, government municipal agencies. But we tried to break down uh, particular categories into more specific things so that we could get very granular. So like, for example, with education, we didn't just say, you know, education. We said, okay, um, higher education, um, you know, universities and colleges. And then we also said K through 12. And we expected that a lot of people would want news on K through 12 because they're parents and because they have children um, within uh, the Los Angeles Unified School District. And that was not the case. More people wanted information on higher education here. And part of that was because they said that they didn't have good information on that already. And one of the other surprising things for us is we found more than a third of the people who took our survey, they wanted to see climate change coverage. Um, specifically. So they we asked them, they answered, and we got to work. Um, so when we we got our first, um, I won't say substantial grant funding, but um, uh, micro grants that were able to support uh, reporting projects, um, climate change and sustainability, that was at the top of our list. So this has been in the works. Uh, Twenty, What is 2035 now has been in the works for a bit. So 2035 in particular came up um, as sort of our framing for this because we had, um, you know, our California governor, Gavin Newsom, he announced this goal of having all new passenger cars and trucks sold in the state be zero emission by 2035. And then we also had our, our state air resources board um, to move ahead with this ban on gas powered vehicles um, by the same deadline. Um, we were the first state to kind of take the step, but then we also had um, other things happening at our local level here in Los Angeles. Um, 
we had our uh, local, our LA Board of Education voting to increase green space in schools by 30% by 2035. Um, and then we also had this coinciding with things that were happening at, happening at the federal level. So with President Biden issuing an executive order on the climate crisis and calling for the development of a plan to achieve carbon pollution free energy uh, in the energy sector by 2035. So we had this date keep coming up, coming up, coming up. So we use that as a framing to really talk about some of these issues more in depth from a data-driven and a solutions reported uh, perspective. So 2035 is the framing. Um, we've had some people say, well, we don't have until 2035. And my response to that is like, we absolutely agree with you. 2035 is not our deadline. That may be the deadline for the government, but we're saying we got to do something now. Absolutely. And um, I wonder, um, Melba, I've read some of your stories and um, you often use data to inform um, your storytelling. And I wonder, how do you do that? And how do you go about that? Um, do you use the, do you find the data first or do you stumble upon something and then do some research and come across that to sort of show these injustices? Well, since so much of what I write about is people and places. And people who were being, people who were in those places and the kind of impacts that are on them. And so there is a good deal of data out there about where certain industries are located. You can find that like geomapping and most of the environmental groups or, you know, activists have mapped things like here in North Carolina, our big issue well we have we have a lot of big issues <laughs> but the industrial uh animal farms are a huge issue so there's been mapping done to show where those were located where they put them what communities that they always cite them in so you can um that's very that's very telling and it's very compelling information to share with people when you're trying to explain to them what's going on. So you know how we say a picture is worth a thousand words. And that's how I use the data to paint a picture. If they're to show where all of these poultry farms are located, where all of these hog farms are located, there's by data, I mean, I'm sorry, by income and race. You can see that clearly. So I use that a lot. And if I'm working on a story, sometimes I get that information, like there's a new study that came out and I can uh, use that data to pull in. But most any story that I pick up that's about environmental justice, I'm able to find the numbers to back that up. And I think, uh, for instance, the wood pellet industry is growing crazy here in North Carolina, this first place that they were situated. And all of them are in Black communities, uh, economically depressed Black communities. And they get there by promising jobs and, you know, we're going to do this for you and do that. And none of that ever comes through. But they have um, just very deliberately situated these kind of, um, I guess, these kind of industries in certain neighborhoods. 
And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the data showing how Black communities in the U.S. are impacted by climate change. Oh, yes. This is something that um, I'm very, very heavily into right now. Um, so in every area um, that I have researched so far, in every area I've researched, Black communities, along with Latina communities in a lot of cases, they're contributing to the impacts of climate change the least. Um, in Los Angeles specifically, many of these folks are low income. They're not driving. They don't own vehicles. So they, they're not buying electric vehicles. They use public transit. Um, many of them are among the 60% of Angelinos who rent. So they're not able to, you know, put up solar panels or, you know, change certain things about their home or the apartment because they don't own it. Um, in many folks, uh, in in many cases, these folks who are low income, sustainability is not the top priority is, survival is. I mean, we have so many things here that are um, really stacking the deck uh, against uh, folks who are low income and are struggling. And, you know, it's it's a matter of making it from day to day. And frankly, they're not the problem. There's this, um, I call it kind of, I may not have coined this term, but I'm using it. Um, it's this green guilt to shame people who aren't sustainable. Um, and a lot of the times, the people that we are shaming, they're the people who are contributing least to the problem. We're, we're telling them, you know, oh, tisk tisk, you know, uh, you know, bad on you, but they're not the problem. It's really the folks who, you know, we drive everywhere instead of taking public transit. Um, we're not paying attention to the things that, you know, we're throwing away. It's the people who are more middle-class, the, the wider communities, the more affluent communities, um, at least in uh, Los Angeles that are, you know, using the freeways more and contributing more to that pollution. So really even thinking on a grander scale, consumers as a whole, including the people who are least contributing to climate change, aren't the biggest problem. So it's not the, the Black communities and the Latina communities who are a little more low income in some cases. It's not even, you know, the, you know, middle class folks who are often white who are, you know, driving more or um, using more resources. Um, it's, it's the fact that we're not talking about um, consumers being the biggest part of the problem, but that's what we see um, in, in the news. It's like, okay, you got to be more green. You have to, you know, make sure you recycle, make sure you compost, make sure you do this, make sure you do that. But we don't press government and corporate accountability nearly enough. We talk about, you know, what legislation we're trying to pass. We talk about, um, you know, guidelines that, you know, we think should uh, be in place for them. But we, we don't necessarily go back and talk about enforcement or if they or follow up on whether they actually did what they were supposed to do or press why they're not doing more um, in enough cases. That's not necessarily the news. It, it comes back to consumers so much. We're blaming the folks who were historically redlined into the worst places in cities, near industry, um, in those areas of industry were purposefully positioned for prevailing winds. So the pollution um, flowed away from the rest of the city. And it, you know whose neighborhoods it flew into? It's the Black folks that they were trying to redline away from the nicer neighborhoods. That's why we see in so many um, cities that the southeast part of the city 
is where you've got high concentrations of Black people, high concentrations of people who have less generational wealth and have less means to move away from these areas that can be harmful to their health. In Los Angeles, we have a lot of Black and Latina communities. They're concentrated around where we have freeways because we built them through their communities um, years and years ago and knew what effects that was going to have. Um, so they're suffering from this ultra particulate matter that is creating this air pollution. They're breathing this in. It's causing them higher rates of asthma um, and other respiratory issues. I mean, we did this, but then we blame the people that it's happening to, which, I mean, honestly boggles my mind. But, you know, the data that we use to show how Black communities are impacted by climate change. We sometimes we're using it against the wrong people. We're using it for the wrong things instead of saying, you know, oh, whoa, you know, these folks are imperiled. These folks have bad health outcomes. Yes, I think that's incredibly important, but we need to leverage that against, you know, government and corporate accountability and say, hey, you caused this. So what are you going to do about it now? Right. And I wonder um, more specifically if you could talk about sort of the impact of you know, how climate change is affecting Black communities, particularly in North Carolina. Like some of the research I came across, they're more likely to have asthma because of all the pollution. They're more likely to be displaced. There's just all these things that show how much things are stacked up against this community and this, you know, and, and all over the United States, really. Well, I started focusing, you know, kind of almost exclusively on environmental health and envi the environment and climate change. While I was doing, um, I had, uh, I did a six part series about the impact of the pandemic of the coronavirus on Charlotte's black community. And so there were six different stories, but every one of those stories, when I was looking at people, it was the folks who were the sickest and suffering the most from the pandemic were also the people who lived in the worst environmental conditions for a number of reasons because of the pollution, you know, that made, um, uh, that exacerbated respiratory diseases. And because these are the people who had to take the bus to work, they were considered essential workers. And so they couldn't take off. Anyway, they were in these situations where they became more susceptible to the, the pandemic and had the worst experiences with them. <clears throat> so I just wanted to focus so much more on the tie-in between health and the environment and climate change and, and all of that. And one of the things you're talking about impacting people in the Carolinas, I kind of put them together, North and South. We were the first. We we're the uh, were the first state to get the wood pellet uh, processing plants here, and so we know that in order to make wood, you got to cut trees. In order to cut trees, you're you're going to create a lot of deforestation, and they they're doing this all in communities that are. Uh, prone to flooding because they're on the coast. So they're taking away a lot of that buffer in communities that are already under siege. Uh, the peop 
if you look at what's called the Gullah Geechee Corridor, and that's where that's the coastal area from North Carolina down through Florida, and that's where the descendants of enslaved Africans uh, lived and have lived for 400 years. And because it's such a coastal community, it is going underwater because of climate change and you know sea level rise. But there's also the added factor of overdevelopment building in the marsh, things like that. And these people who, it's, you know, it's exacerbating the whole thing, like rainy day flooding and stuff like that. So the people who live there and have lived there, they are being um, kind of forced out of their homes by natural, natural events, these tragic events and climate related events, and also by development because they can't afford to live there. And when their houses, if you're poor, if your house uh, is flooded underwater, you're less, much less likely to get suitable or any funding from FEMA to rebuild. And so people are losing their properties because they can't you know, afford to repair, so they just have to go somewhere else. And there have been studies, recent studies that show that the coastal areas are the most impacted. And along the, by the coming climate change, the flooding and all of that, and the 100-year storm, and the people most impacted among those are Black people, Black and brown people, because that's where they live and also have the fewer resources to kind of rebound from these uh, devastating storms and floods. And you gave a talk at the Computational Journalism Conference in Zurich a couple of weeks ago, Dana, uh, that I attended as well. And it was the, the talk is called Your Data is Racist. What does equitable data journalism look like when the data itself is biased? And I just wondered if you could talk a little about a little bit about what data issues in terms of data collection you've run into when it comes to covering climate change for black communities in L.A. Oh, this is this is a, a really um, interesting one to me. Um, I think it extends not just to covering climate change for Black communities, but really covering climate change for a lot of historically marginalized communities um, and places that aren't um, more fluent, that aren't um, that aren't whiter. Uh, in terms of data collection, um, sometimes uh, overall the data just isn't there. We don't have it because nobody has bothered to collect it. Um, and then in other cases, someone has collected it. There's a government agency that has it, but they don't want us to have it. Um, or in uh, a lot of cases that we found, the data exists. We are able to get it, but then the form we get it in is deplorable. So unless you have a, a very... Um, high level of skill at being able to work with those kinds of documents and those kinds of files to convert it into something that's more easily um, accessible uh, to use and to analyze, then you're you're kind of screwed. <laughs> it's like you have to be able to get from the really um, kind of wonky documents, wonky files into something that you can actually analyze it, analyze, analyze it and then get the findings from it and then do the reporting. So there's like this very longer drawn out cycle because the data isn't being collected or at least being provided in a form that is 
really usable to anybody outside that particular agency or outside that particular group. Um, one particular thing um, that I can say has been easy in terms of um, some data collection is government agencies where we've been able to, um, I've been able to work with uh, some other developers, um, some other groups um, in the nonprofit news space who have built uh, APIs uh, to tap into these government agencies. And they're um, the, the programs that they've built are constantly pulling like new reports or new data um, from these systems. So one such project, it's called the uh, Data Liberation Project. Um, I know the, the founder, the creator, um, Jeremy Singer-Vines, who is an excellent human being, and the whole initiative, um, the whole purpose is to identify, to obtain, to reformat the data and to clean it and to publish it and disseminate it, um, government data sets that are of the public interest. So I think that's really the biggest problem that I've encountered on um, gathering data in for, to cover climate change. It's the fact that either we can't get it, which it's like, okay, I know I can't get it, I need to find another avenue, but it's more frustrating when you get it and it's in this horrible readable format um, and you know that you can't really do anything um, with it, or that you're gonna, you don't have the resources to turn it into what you need, um, or you're con you're having to expend extra resources to go find somebody who can help you turn it into into what you need. Absolutely, and um, I wonder, um, Melba, the communities that are like the most impacted, or the ones that are suffering the most, and will have to suffer the most to sort of save the planet in a way. Um, and war is put on their shoulders. And yeah, I mean, if I look at the story you did on Panama and the indigenous community being pushed out there, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that story and like how you see parallels between the Panama experience and the North Carolina experience. Well, I mean, I see pan uh, those parallels wherever I look, I just happened to be in Panama because it was really cold and I wanted to go somewhere warm. <laughs> and I said, okay, Panama, that's easy to get to, blah, blah, blah. And I went and then I found out this is, I've never, I'd never heard of that place. I'd never heard of those people, but it was such an interesting story. And then to learn what they were going through uh, and to tell that because they're kind of the first people who have actually, you know, been moved uh, are moving in, in mass. And so there are a lot of people looking to see how they do it. But they are the first or uh, one of the very first. There will be so many coming behind them. So who have no choice. So there are people it's it's almost akin to what's happening out near near Charleston. Um, let's see. Thirty years ago, Charleston uh, was seventy percent black, and now it's thirty percent that area around there. And a lot of those people have been displaced. They've lost uh, land that's been in their family for generations. And so they it's the same kind of thing. And I'm starting work on a story about the Shinnecock Indian tribe in Long Island. The stories are almost identical. P 
people who this is their kind of ancestral land. And because of climate change, rising seas, they are based, they're trying to hold on as long as they can because this is the only part of their land that's left. So they're trying to do whatever they can, but it's really tough and not sustainable. And you see this happening all around the world. We will have so many climate refugees um, in the next 20, 30 years. It's kind of heartbreaking, I'd say. And so a lot of education really needs to still happen on, you know, environmental justice issues. So I, I wonder who are the thought leaders that you would recommend? So the first is one that perhaps is a little bit uh, unorthodox or maybe an unusual choice um, when talking about um, climate change. But I recommend Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma. I think that we are so disconnected with our relationship with our food and where it comes from. I mean, um, I used to babysit a lot of kids and, you know, when I'd be, you know, making them a little snack or something and say, oh, we're out of this, need to go to the grocery store. And it's like, oh yeah, food comes from the grocery store. And I'm like, no, this was grown in the ground and it was transported to the grocery store. And I feel like sometimes, yeah, that's a, it's a kid approach, but I feel like sometimes a lot of adults kind of have that mindset too. It's like everything comes from the grocery store. And it's like, no, it doesn't. Someone had to take the time and and nurture this from, you know, plant to picking to, you know, transport to get it to the store. And we're so disconnected from that relationship, from that um, relationship with the earth, with what it is we consume, that getting back to that, I think, is kind of a reset in your mindset. Um, at least it, it definitely was for me when I read it. Um, it really helped me um, reconnect with the idea that, you know, it's it may be really easy for me to go to the store and pick up a gallon of milk or, you know, pick up a, a um, some apples or pick up, you know, some produce. But someone, there's a lot of other people in the supply chain who got it to me, who got it to this point for me. And I think that's really important for people to reconnect with, um, especially as we're talking about the effects of farming and agriculture on climate change. And we're talking about how um, we can make some of these processes more sustainable. How we're talking, we have people talking about, well, you have to eat a plant-based diet in order to, you know, if you're an environmentalist, if you really want to save the earth. Now, I will not tell anybody else what to do. I mean, I personally am a um, I'm, I am an omnivore. I eat everything. Um, do I necessarily eat meat for every meal? No, but I do understand the impacts of, you know, different choices that I make with food and how that impacts our, our ecosystem. So I think it's just a really interesting book and it, it, um, starts to formulate some really interesting questions for you as a reader. Um, a book that I guess is more a little more conventional and that folks may be more familiar with is The Intersectional Environmentalist, which really um, makes these connections between environmentalism, racism, and privilege. And the bottom line is, you know, 
we're not going to save the planet. Uh, we're not going to save the the earth that we know now if we are not listening to people who are marginalized, if we're not listening to the people who are most affected by this. Um, going back to you know our Black and Latina communities, at least in that Los Angeles example, if we're not listening to the people who are most impacted by this, we are screwed as a people. Um, because we're not listening to people who are the most vulnerable and they have to be part of that conversation as well. The, you know, kind of the seminal book on environmental racism was written by Bob Willard. Um, It's called Dumping in Dixie. And Bob Willard is considered the father of the environmental justice movement. He's down at, in Texas and he does a lot of work. He's an advisor to the president on this Another book that I would recommend, and it's it's solely kind of about the hog farm industry, but it is so compelling and kind of tells the whole story about how this started, where it's going, and follows that lawsuit that went through it's called Wastelands. And that was, um, his name is escaping me right now. But it came out last year, and it's it's a, it reads like a novel <laughs> because you think one reason it reads like a novel because there are good guys and bad guys, and the bad guys are so obvious. <laughs> you think it's you know that they couldn't be real, but they are absolutely real. So that's a, a book that's really kind of explains what's happened here in North Carolina, and then the movement that uh, Reverend Barber, William Barber, started here in the Moral Monday movement is also very heavily focused on environmental justice. And following his work and his activism, I think, is a good way to be engaged as well and know what's going on. And I wonder what thing would you like to see improved when it comes to environmental justice, particularly in, in L.A.? I would love to see better data collection, um, first and foremost, but I would also like to see more data transparency. I feel like when we start asking these questions of certain agencies, they kind of, you know, clam up and um, become mum and like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I don't really know, you know, why you're asking for this. And it's it's a very defensive view. I'm like, I, I'm I'm not accusing you of of wrongdoing. I just want to analyze the data for myself. I'm not saying you did anything wrong or your agency did anything wrong. I just want to look at it for myself and see what the impacts are on the communities that I'm covering. So there's this um, this knee jerk reaction to protect oneself that I think definitely um, could should go away. Um, in terms of action. I think that the onus has really got to be more on um, our agencies and government, whether that's municipal and local government or our federal agencies, to really step up. We have um, citizens who are really stepping up to the plate. I mean, we have student journalists um, who are doing these great research projects. Um, so shout out to Maryland, um, Merrill College's uh, Capital News Service for their project Code Red, where they wanted to explore the climate divide in Baltimore. So 
um, with guidance from um, folks in the engineering department, these journalists, they built 80 sensors to monitor extreme heat and humidity in Baltimore homes. Um, they mirrored it after a project called the Harlem Heat Project from 2016. And so we have entities that aren't government, that aren't um that aren't in a position to have to look at these things who are stepping up to the plate and saying, Hey, we know this is a problem and we want to measure it and quantify it. And that's something that, you know, our government really should be doing. Um, it's great that we have all of these, these groups, nonprofit news, um, in newsrooms working on this, um, student newsrooms, um, even some really concerned citizens who are just doing some really cool things and making what they're, they've got available to others like me to use. But it really comes down to people who are our policymakers, our legislators, our decision makers. Um, they got to step up to the plate too. Well, what one thing I'd like to see, well, is some actual justice. <laughs> <laughs> but and and how that would come about, I don't know. But I would like to see more. It starts with awareness. And even though we've made strides on the communities, the impacted communities being more aware that they are at the on the front lines, I think that has to become. as prominent as the civil rights movement became, that it has to engage people across the strata. And they that starts with realizing how much is at stake. Well, Melba and Dana, thank you so much both for coming on Conversations with Data. It was absolutely fascinating hearing your perspective on this. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Tara. I appreciate uh, the invitation. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. Conversations with Data podcast is an initiative by datajournalism.com, powered by the European Journalism Center and supported by Google News Initiative. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.